Welcome to the Sermon Podcast from Compass Church. In this sermon from January 23rd, 2022, Pastor Craig Kidder preaches from Psalm 29, where we see the life-changing benefit of paying attention to God's Word. For more information, please visit compasscfc.com. Let's just stay there for a second. Father, I think it was Marcus Aurelius that once said, that which stands in the way becomes the way. God, there's so many things this morning that feel like they stand in the way between us and you. Maybe it's our own shame. Maybe we're, we're looking at the world and we're overwhelmed with fear. Maybe it's anger. God, you don't, you don't invite us to ignore those things. Those things become the way that we experience redemption. You climb into the box that we're in, you meet us there, and you walk with us toward restoration and peace. So God, I pray you do that this morning. I pray that we would be a people who experience your peace in the midst of the obstacles that are in front of us. God, I pray that we'd be transformed. And that others would see that and be invited into this beautiful restoration project that you're working on with your creation, God. I pray you do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. You can have a seat. What a way to come out of quarantine. Oh, my goodness. It's good to be back among the living. My name is Craig, and it took Corona 20 months to get me. And it got me. But we're okay. Thank you. There was one day where it was a little hairy. I don't know if it was hairy or if I'm just a wimp, but it was, it was hairy. But thank you. I, lots of encouraging texts. It was good to know. I'm not fighting it alone. Even though the person that gave it to me, you know who you are. I, I see you. I'm not going to judge you or shame you publicly or anything, but you know who you are. Uh, you know, because we were in quarantine these past 10 days, we did what you do when you go into quarantine. We were kicking it like it was 2020 all over again. We did it. We did it. It took my wife a long time, but we finally, uh, she convinced me to do a puzzle. And uh, let me just say, I am no fan of puzzles, all right? Thank you. Yeah, I thought I was going to get, like, totally dragged for that. Uh, there's just something about, like, I see the picture, you know? Why do I need to make the picture? You know, this, this is not super rewarding, but we did it. We laid out all the pieces. We put all the pieces on the floor. And I'm not joking. I was, like, I was focused. This had my undivided attention. And like, you know, this, this is the puzzle. Here's the front. I'll show you. The, this is the, for those of you who can't see. This is the front of the box, right? And I'm just like really struggling because I have a lot of blue. Yeah, we just really went for it. Um, I had a lot of like blue pieces. And I was like, this is ridiculous. How does anybody do this puzzle? And Amy, like her section was immaculate. She put this huge section together. I had like three or four pieces that felt like a victory. All right. But then look at this. This is not the whole, this is the front of the puzzle box. But this is the puzzle. I don't know who made this, but they're like, hey, here's the puzzle box. This is the picture you're trying to make. Oh, but actually this I don't know what that dog on the bottom is, but maybe they're like, but we can't market that puppy. It's a less cute puppy. I don't know. But do you hear the insanity of these puzzle makers that were like, let's just give you part of the picture to put together. All right. Now, I would like to report to you that when Amy handed me the back of the puzzle box, I crushed it. All right. And I did. I think I went from about two pieces to about six. Um, but it was helpful to know what I was trying to build. It was helpful to get the whole picture. And that's exactly what we're doing with this series, This Is Compass. We're trying to say, here's the puzzle box. Here's what we're doing. Because if, you, if you're just seeing part of the pieces together, it can be frustrating. You can miss the whole big picture of what we're trying to do. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to be a people. I didn't make this up. I didn't come up with this. I'm going to get rid of this because I don't want to feel bad the whole time. We're trying to be a people whose Christ's love is at work transforming us. We, we want to be a people experiencing Christ's love, and that love transforms us. We want you to be the most loved missionary in your classroom, in your cubicle, in your family. 
We think that if we're people who are experiencing Christ's love transforming us, we're going to go back out into the world, and we're going to be deeply loved missionaries. That's the puzzle piece. And what we're saying is, if we focus on these six values, seven, sorry, seven values, if we focus on these seven values, if we cultivate this, if we are people who practice this, we can't guarantee results, but we think we'll start to be people who are transformed by Christ's love and then go into our cubicles, go into our classrooms, go into our nursing homes, whatever situation you find yourself in, and be deeply loved missionaries, right? If we're people who are transformed by love and then nobody has any idea that that's going on, they're like, you love? You? I wouldn't put those two things together. I don't know if we're doing our job. We may have failed you. We're saying, here's the puzzle piece. And we're focusing this year really on four of these letters. It's our COPS year, all right? We're, gonna, we're talking about connect. That was a couple weeks ago. Orient, our lives around scripture, practices, and story. That's kind of this year we're focused. This is the year of the COPS, all right? We're focusing on those four things. Last week, I was, I, I just want to say, you never have to apologize for a Tom Waits reference either. Thank you. I, thank you for that, Scott. Uh, last week, you took a little break, but this week, we're getting right back into it, talking about orienting orienting our lives around scripture when you come to a new place and you're disoriented how do you get your bearings how do we organize our lives around scripture what does that mean to be what what does it mean to do that what does it look like what's the puzzle box for that this morning we're going to look at in the bible at a master class in what it looks like to orient our lives around scripture have you, but speaking of master classes, have you heard of the company called Masterclass? Okay, this, it, I think it's amazing. It could also, it's, it's so amazing it teeters on ridiculous. But do you know how you can like learn anything through YouTube, right? Anything, right? So like anything. I dare you to think of something, tell me, and you can, you will, you can learn how to be a master of that on YouTube. It's amazing, all right? Well, this one company said, what if we took that and put it on steroids? And you're like, how in the world would you do that? So there's a company called Masterclass that they have compiled all these instruction videos from seriously, like, mind-numbing people. Like, I cannot believe, like, so you can take a Masterclass in acting from Helen Mirren, all right? Nowhere in your life would you ever find yourself in the same room as Helen Mirren. Now you can enroll in a class and learn how to act from Helen Mirren. You can take directing with Ron Howard. Opie will teach you how to look down the lens of a camera. Amazing. Robin Roberts, she can teach you effective and authentic communication. Wouldn't that be nice to learn? These are seriously like the, the best of the best of the best are going to teach you how to do these things. It gets better though, all right? I love this, by the way. Look at Steph. Steph will teach you shooting, ball handling, and scoring. And Serena is like, I'm going to teach you tennis. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, well, shoot it. Okay, that, all right. But, I, okay, if you're skeptical about this, which I was, am, somewhere in that, uh, I found clips of the Steph Curry teaching shooting, ball handling, and scoring, and Look, he, what he was working with, I mean, zero to 10 is a big deal, right? Not that big of much movement, right? But he's like, hey, here's what you should aim for when you shoot a basketball. So Jet and I go to the park, and I started aiming for what he was talking about. And I, when I wasn't aiming for that, I was making like two out of 10 free throws. I went up to like four. So the jury's out. Maybe this all really works, right? You can learn, uh, you know, skateboarding from Tony Hawk. That'd be super cool. My childhood is, you know, excited about that. But look, it gets, you're like, maybe that's not your thing, right? Maybe you're like, oh, I don't need to learn acting or directing. All right, well, we have something for you. How would you like to learn diplomacy with Madeline Albright and Condoleezza Rice? Or if that's not your thing, you can learn uh, conservation with Dr. Jane Goodall, right? It's staggering, like, anything you can think of, we can teach you, all right? It's a, it's, there's just this overwhelming, like, hey, take a master class. You think of something, we'll find the best person in the world to teach you that. Boom, you're welcome. We're living in an age that has no shortage of information. And when information is in abundance, attention becomes scarce, 
When information is in abundance, seriously, think of two celebrities, any two celebrities, you can probably find them talking to each other on the internet. Everybody and their mom has a podcast, right? About anything you could ever think of. There are people who have become millionaires. You've never heard of these people, and you've never heard about what they're into. But there's a huge subculture that's into that, and they have become absolute millionaires. Do you know what one of the most watched things on YouTube is? What is it? Maybe. Maybe it's cat videos, but it's also gaming. So, like, stadiums in Korea are filled with people playing video games, and then people watch that on YouTube. It's one of the most watched things on YouTube. You didn't even know that was a thing, and it's a, maybe even, it's a million, million, million dollar industry. You didn't even know that's a thing. All right? When information is abundant, attention becomes scarce. We don't not know things because the information isn't out there. All right? We just have no idea what to pay attention to. And attention is the first step toward devotion. What we pay attention to is what our lives will ultimately become. What runs through your mind? What do you constantly find yourself replaying over and over again? Was it that hurtful comment from your coworker? Was it that rude text from your brother? What do you give your attention to? The things we give our attention to are the things that shape us. How do we pay attention to God and his word. Many of us, look, I, we're going to talk about scripture reading, all right? And for many of us, that comes with lots and lots of baggage, all right? We've been in situations where church environments where it was almost used as like a weapon, like people just, I got a verse for that. I'll tell you why you're in the wrong. Here's a verse. I got a reference. You're probably not going to look it up. You don't know the context, but I'm right. I'm holy. Boom. Bludgeon. We've been in situations where it's like a shame thing. Oh, you didn't read your Bible today? Ooh. Here, I have good news for you, okay? Well, I don't know if it's good news, but just let's just, we can look at reality together. According to LifeWay Research, among American Protestants, let me just bring this up so I don't, you know, remember pastors and statistics are dangerous. How often do you read the Bible? Uh... Every day, I don't know if you can see this, but it says every day, 32% among Protestant churchgoers. Now, they were celebrating this like, woohoo, the number's up. This is fantastic. Here's a reality, though, about what that means, that most of us don't, all right? If you think about two-thirds of this room, we don't read our Bibles every day, all right? I went to seminary, and this is totally anecdotal, uh, but I was just like, hey, do you read your Bible every day? And they're like, "Mm, no. And I was in a seminary environment. I met people who were in PhD level like theology stuff and they hadn't read the Bible in its entirety. All right? Now, let's just pause for a second. The goal is not reading the Bible. All right? The goal, we are, I'm going to be, this is sloppy, but I'm just asking for an umbrella of grace. Okay? We're not a book club. Okay? Like, the the Church of the Living God is not a book club. But, 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 this is no ordinary book. So we got to talk about that. We got to talk about that. But the goal is not just to get folks reading. All right? But we have to recognize, if we're going to talk about orienting our lives around God's Word, that this becomes our North Star, that this becomes the lens through which we see the world. We have to recognize, we have to recognize that the lens through which we see this book is our own story. We bring our own stories, our own baggage into the reading of Scripture. How have you related to authority in your life? The Bible talks a lot about authority. 
Depending on your relationship with authority, you're going to have different feelings about that. What about love? Do you feel like you've experienced unconditional love? Do you feel like you've been seen your worst, like you've been totally vulnerable, totally exposed, and in that most vulnerable place you've been loved? Or do you hide? Do you feel like being loved is scary and you just bounce from relationship to relationship? As soon as people tick you off, we're out of here. What about disappointments? Have people made promises to you and not kept them? There's a lot of promises in this book. And we have reactions to that based on our story. The first step in orientation is recognizing we have a lens through which we look at this book. And the beautiful thing that we're going to see today is that God does not ask us to ignore that lens. He actually looks through that lens with us and asks us, are you willing to be open to a different perspective? God doesn't, doesn't expect us to pretend like we don't have the baggage that we have. We are in a box, and God climbs into that box with us so that we can experience restoration. We're going to be in a psalm today, but before we go to that psalm, we've got to talk about a verse that colors everything about how we see the Bible, all right? And this is amazing. 2 Timothy 3.16. We're going to be in the Psalms today, but this is, like a, this is getting us to Psalms. 2 Timothy 3.16. Paul, who's writing to Timothy, it's his last will and testament to like his protege. He's given all this advice. He's talking about studying the scriptures, which in context clearly means the Hebrew Bible. Paul was steeped in the Hebrew Bible. He oriented his life around it. He loved the Hebrew Bible. And here's what he says to Timothy about the Hebrew Bible. All scripture is, and then what does your version say? All scripture is... God breathed. Some say inspired. What Theopneustos? What Paul did is he made up a word. It's nowhere in antiquity. It's it, everywhere after is quoting this. He put two words together: God and breath. This is amazing. All right. This is this this. If you don't get anything else today, this is it. All right. If you're just thinking about the Buffalo Bills right now and you're nervous. Because Josh Allen is a superhuman, all right? This, this is, I just need you for this. Then you can go back to your fantasy land with the Kansas City Chiefs, all right? Which, by the way, is becoming a bandwagon, all right? I've just lived here four years, and every year it gets more and more Chiefs fans, all right? Welcome to the bandwagon, all right? In Hebrew, the verb for breathe and the verb for to be alive are the same word. I know, amazing, all right? Let me say it again because you didn't get it. In Hebrew, the word hawa for breathe is the same word for to be alive. And it's very obvious, right? Like, this, you know, not a ton of medical advancements in this day. Someone's breathing. We're good to go, all right? They're alive, all right? Think about this. Scripture says there's two things God breathed life into. Humans, he makes them alive. In this book. Now, 2 Timothy 3.16, what is it saying? It's saying this book is alive, right? It's God-breathed. It has life. It's alive. But it's not just alive. It's alive with God's life. This book is alive. Here's how we say it around here. The Bible is not God. But... The Bible is God. What? The Bible is not God, all right? If you go home and you worship this book and you pray to this book and you like, you know, like you don't put it on the floor because like, oh my gosh, it's God, right? Like, no, we don't do that, all right? Like I've intentionally, I've slid Bibles across the floor to people because there are certain religious movements in the world where their sacred book, they don't let it go below their waist, right? Christians aren't like that because we don't worship a book, all right? But... Jesus is called the Word, all right? And what Paul says is that this Word is God-breathed. It has God's life coursing through it. When we read this book, we encounter the living God. 
This book is alive, and it's alive with his life. You want to meet God? He's here. All right? Now, many of you have heard that verse before, 2 Timothy 3.16. If you've been around church for a long time, you've heard that to mean that Scripture is inspired, right? That the source of it is God, which we totally affirm. But a lot of those ideas, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of those ideas about saying Scripture is inspired, came out of not, uh, they came out of conflict. The Bible was under attack. Lots of people were questioning its authority. And so people in a defensive posture said, the Bible is inspired. It has, its source is God, it's inerrant. And please hear me clearly. We affirm that with everything that's in us. Deep in my bones, I'm like, yes. We stand on the shoulders of men and women who fought battles so that we can trust this book. But that's not all Paul is saying when he says Scripture is inspired. He's saying this is a relational book. You can dwell with, you can know, you can meet the living God. You can experience his life through this book. We're going to talk about reading this book, what it looks like to experience God through this book. And here's, here's an assumption that I'm going to just say out of the gate. I don't assume the reason that none of us read the Bible every day is because of a lack of motivation. We just have poorly designed habits, all right? We're not reading the Bible because like, oh, would I love to dwell with the living God? Would I love to spend time with the one true creator God? The same God that showed up to Moses in the burning bush. Would I like to hang out with him? No. No, I don't think that's anybody's posture, right? Anybody, if you ask anybody, would you like to hear from the living God? Anybody? They'd be, yes. Would you like to hear more from the living God? Yes, I would. The writers of Ecclesiastes say that's what, it, that's what it's like to have eternity in our hearts. All humans have eternity in our hearts. We all want to hear from God. The reason we don't read our Bibles is not because we lack motivation. We just poorly designed habits. Some of us lack ability. We think we can't do it. We're going to talk about that today. But we got to recognize if we are going to be people who become lifelong students of Scripture, if we're going to be people who orient our lives around the God of this book, around this book, we have to recognize that we bring our stories to it. When I talk about reading Scripture every day, depending on your church tradition, depending on your relationship with authority, that can stir up some things. All right? Here's the beautiful thing. The master class that we're going to look at today in Psalm 29 is that God looks through the lenses that we have with us. He looks through those lenses. And again, what's in the way becomes the way. The lenses that we have become how we experience restoration and redemption. And he does this through his word. This is a restorative book. Psalm 29, here's what happens. It is a master class. It's way better than like directing with Opie or learning to skateboard with Tony Hawk. David, what's his resume? Scripture, not once, but like five times, says that David was a man after God's own heart. Whew. I've been to a lot of funerals, and people really struggle to say kind things about people when they pass away, you know? Like, David, yeah, he was a... Uh, no, when the Bible thinks about David again and again and again, he was a man after God's own heart. Not a man who wanted to learn facts about God, but a man who was chasing after the very heart of God. He has a resume. He knows what it's like to orient his life around Scripture. And in Psalm 29, he gives us a master class. He's watching a thunderstorm. All right, it's coming down over the Mediterranean Sea. It heads inland and then north towards Kadesh Barnea. And I don't know where that is. It's okay. Hang on. All right? And he's watching a thunderstorm. And he starts using poetry and a pun to tell Israel what God is like in contrast with what Baal is like. The lens through which Israel was looking at the world was Baal, all right? Our neighbors are secular. Israel's neighbors worship Baal. Baal was a fertility god. In an agrarian society, if you wanted it to rain, you had to be good to the fertility god. And so David is watching it rain. Baal rode on the clouds. For all you Mario Kart fans, he's Wakitu, okay? Baal rides on the clouds, and David sees the clouds, and he sees a thunderstorm, 
And he starts talking about God's word. And he climbs into the box that his people are in, thinking that Baal is God. And it's scary, and we, we got to just play, we got to go along to get along, folks. All right? He climbs into that box, and he shows them how Yahweh looks through the lens that they're looking at and helps them experience restoration. This is a beaut- it's a master class from a master. Seven times he says, the voice of the Lord. The word voice is the same as thunder, but it's also a more intimate way to say the word of the Lord. It's not just his word, it's his voice. He's being punny. With, with, it's amazing. If you think bo- that beauty is just an add-on to life, oh, beauty is not just this nice add-on. It's like, oh, yeah, like we get, to, we get forgiven our sins, and sometimes we get to experience beauty. We get to see from this psalm what it's like to follow God, and it's beautiful. There's deep poetry. It's, a, it's, it's someone who's being able to integrate the world he lives in with the world of Scripture he's reading about, even though they feel really far away. And he's not just doing this so we can watch and say, well, that sure was cool and nice. People ought to be able to do that. It's a master class for us to join in and do the same. So when we see our world splintering, when we feel fear, when we feel chaos, we have someone who went before us and said that you can trust this word. So Psalm 29, please stand with me out of reverence for God's word. Psalm 29. Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon like a calf and Syrian like a wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the deserts of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. All in his temple cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we want to be lifelong students of Scripture. Teach us. Help us to be people who orient our lives around what you say. God, in doing so, we will experience our own stories. We experience the lens through which we see you. God, we love putting you in a box. God, I pray for the next few minutes you would help us to see the boxes that we've put you in and experience a love relationship with the living creator, God. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. This poem that David gives to us, again, it's extremely well constructed. The phrase, the voice of the Lord, repeats itself seven times. That gives us a hint about what exactly it is David's trying to communicate. Seven in Hebrew is the number of wholeness. In seven days, God made the world. Seven is everything is put together and as it should. God's word is put together and as it should be. Remember we talked about 2 uh, Timothy 3.16? Remember saying that the Bible is not God, but the Bible is God. David affirms that. 
Look with me uh, at verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. So line 1 in this poem, the voice of the Lord. He equates that again in line 2. The God of glory thunders. He's saying God's word and then God. He's equating God with his word. And he does that again in verse 8. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert. God's word is an extension of him. This word, we don't worship a book, we don't worship the Bible, but the Bible is an extension of who God is. Well, now, what we believe about that is the original autographs are what's inspired. What the, the originals, that those, the, what David wrote, what Paul wrote, that's what he's talking about with all scripture is inspired is God breathed completely trustworthy reliable inerrant whatever word gets you there you can trust his word because it's an extension of who he is now the question becomes what does this word do look with me at verses one and two at one and two we start to see what david's talking about with what the word does ascribe to the lord you heavenly beings ascribe to the lord glory and strength ascribe to the lord the glory to his name worship the lord in the splendor of his holiness now if we pay attention here who is david talking to who is he talking to you and me no. He's talking to, if you look at verse 1, heavenly beings, angels, literally says sons of God. All right? Here's what's happening here. Because it's, again, the, the very first line, how the, how the psalm starts is we see David commanding angels. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul picks up on this theology. Do you not know you and I will judge angels? David is acting as a restored human. He's acting as, hey, I was created to rule and reign with God. That was lost in the garden. But now I am acting like I was created. He's, he's commanding angels. All right? Look again, though. Look at verses 10 and 11. So the beginning is we see David acting like a restored human. All right? Sin took it away. We see David acting like this. But look at verses 10 and 11. The Lord sits enthroned. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. He blesses his people with peace. So we see it starts with David acting like a restored human, and then it ends with God giving peace and reigning and ruling. See, we have lots of, when we think about authority, we have lots of, like, visions of authority. Ooh, authority is bad. We're really suspicious of power. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And then we're like, hey, God's absolutely powerful. I'm like, okay. The folks reading this would have had similar reservations because the God that they were invited to serve by their neighbors, good neighbors, neighbors they like, people they met at the farmer's market, like people, they're friends, right, worshipped Baal. And Baal was a fertility god. And the way that you got it to rain was you would go out into the field and you would have orgies so that it would please Baal and then he would make it rain. This was the cultural pressure that these agrarian folks were living under. We look at my, my goodness, those folks sure were primitive. No, look, when your livelihood is at stake, you start to do crazy things, all right? If you're a farmer, you know how at the mercy of nature you are. And so what's happening in Israel is that other people are getting ahead. Wow, man. I noticed you had a great crop this year. What'd you do? Oh, well, you know, we finally just started going to Baal festivals and, you know, we don't really believe it. We're just kind of going along to get along, you know, but, you know, that's what we started doing and it was working out, right? And so then now you're left like, man, my family might starve and my neighbors are doing this and this is working out. Ugh. I'm starting to feel pressure here. Right? Nothing happens in a vacuum. And that's who David is talking to. And it's raining. All right? And it's raining. And David watches the rain and says, God is the one making it rain. He's climbing into the box with his people. And he's gently and he's helpfully and he's lovingly pointing them to a different perspective. The center of this poem is verse 6. So if you notice, seven times it says the voice of the Lord. The middle of that 
It doesn't say the voice of the Lord. Verse 6, he, God, makes Lebanon leap like a calf and Syrian leap like a wild ox. Now, what's happening here? Baal lived in Lebanon, and Syrian was called Mount Hermon, was like his home base. All right? Cedars, it says that Baal was a scary god, and he used to chase people into the forests of Lebanon with a cedar in his right hand. All right? Cedars, the word for cedar just means firm. All right? These were firm, powerful, huge trees. And they're like, Baal's like, I'm the biggest and baddest guy. This is my weapon. And what, what, is this, what does the psalmist say is happening here? He says this, God goes into Baal's home address. He goes to his house and he shakes it up. Now, we're like, was Baal real? What's happening? God is climbing into the box that his people are looking through. He's saying, this is standing in the way of our relationship. You're afraid that I'm not going to provide, so you're starting to trust other things. I'm going to crawl into that box with you. I'm going to see the world the way you see the world. All right? And I'm going to tell you, here's another perspective on that. The thunder is not Baal. It's me. You can trust me. And the, the end of this psalm is God is reigning. He sits, he sits enthroned over the flood, the chaos. He's ruling. And we experience peace, shalom, wholeness. And it all happened through his word. And it's very clear that David is doing this as he meditates on scripture. There's Genesis echoes all throughout this psalm. The only time the word flood is mentioned out of the flood story is in verse 10, talking about God is over the surface of the deep. Sounds a lot like Genesis 1-2, that the spirit was hovering over the surface of the deep. David's mind is saturated in scripture, and then he looks at his world, and he sees his people, and he's like, let's integrate this. Let's bring God's word to bear on our world. Not in a shameful way. Not trying to shame like, geez, didn't you know this? Come on. But like, this is really scaring you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to crawl in here with you. What scares you? Is it having a conversation with your friends about January 6th? Is it, is it, you, don't, you wear a mask somewhere, it's like, ah, this is political, I want to get away from this. Is it, I mean, is it the fact that you don't know, like, if I die, is anybody going to care? What are the things that scare you? When we come to Scripture, we don't leave those behind. We bring those. We say, God, here's the box I'm in. Can you help me look through this lens? And what God does is he says, if you pay attention to me, I speak. What we pay attention to is what we give our lives to. And when we pay attention to God, he speaks. David was paying attention to God and God spoke. A storm that could have been an easy bragging point for Baal becomes actually a bragging point for God because someone was paying attention. Now, that gets us to Scripture and our own. How do we pay attention to God? All right? And we have to talk about this. It's called BMAP. BMAP. This is B.J. Fogg, who's a professor at Stanford. This is his behavioral model, okay? Now, BMAP means behavior happens, or behavior equals, behavior happens when you have motivation combined with ability and a prompt, okay? So here's what this means. I, I, I'm losing you, but don't worry. This will change your life. No behavior happens unless at the same time you get motivation, ability, and a prompt. Let's talk about going to the bathroom for a second, all right? Going to the bathroom is a behavior if you have to, if you have to go potty, all right? That's a behavior. That behavior must happen with a prompt. Your body tells you you have to go to the bathroom. It's a great prompt, right? That prompt also cues your motivation. I'm uncomfortable. I'd like to become comfortable. So you have both a prompt and a motivation. However, you're sitting in traffic. You do not have an ability. Therefore, the behavior most likely does not happen, all right? <laughs> We've all been in pretty bad traffic scenarios, all right? Let's talk about Scripture reading. Scripture reading is the behavior. 
Most of us, and most preachers, and most of us have learned, all right, if, if we want to get people to read Scripture, if that's the behavior, let's really focus on motivation. So here's what we'll do. We'll talk about how awesome the Bible is. We'll talk about how you really should read the Bible. We'll, we'll give you all these reasons to kind of drum up your motivation, because if we can get your motivation super-duper high, we'll get the behavior. We'll get you reading the Bible. It doesn't work. It does not work. How many of us are motivated to live healthy lives? I'm very highly motivated to live healthy lives, but I love instant ramen. I do. It's just so good. I mean, I even know the history of instant ramen. I mean, I think it's a beautiful story. Like Momofuku Ando, like, you know, he saw his country starving, and so he comes up with instant ramen, right? I have competing motivations. Motivation, like, it, it's just not something you can rely on. But most of us, when we're focusing on a behavior, we bank on motivation, right? Let's drum up the motivation. Okay, preacher talked to me about, I got to, like, read my Bible every day. All right, here we go. Monday, I'm going to get it. Monday, boom, did it. I'm the best. This is awesome, right? That's not going to last super long, though. All right, and here's how I know. This is no shame, all right? No shame, no guilt. Because we're going to talk about this next week when we talk about practices. Uh, does anyone remember in here, uh, during the Christmas series, we talked about joy, right? And we talked about um, what I called a misfit's guide to joy, okay? And I said, hey, Jim Wilder, he's a neuroscientist. He says if you practice these things, you can actually turn your brain's default mode to joy. Now, not by a show of hands, but how many people went out, grabbed that sheet, and have done it every day? One person, which is incredible and wonderful. I didn't even do it. I started, though. We're going to talk about it next week because I, I figured this out. All right? But here's what happens, though. When, when we, talk, we start talking about behaviors, we always try to focus on motivation. If I can just drum up the motivation to do this, I'll do this. Here's what I want to assume about this. You have the motivation to read the Bible. You do. You said it earlier. How many of you in here would like to hear more from the living God? And you all went, yes. You have the motivation. Stop focusing on the motivation. All right? Like, well, why do I want to read the Bible every day? Is it just like a book club and reading it? No, certainly not. But this same study in here about how often do you read the Bible every day, a few times a week, once, once a week, they set this kind of startling scenario, okay? I still don't really know what to do with this. But according to all their research, people who read the Bible one to three times a week. That Bible has the same effect on them as people who don't read their Bible at all. Ooh, right? So if you're reading your Bible one to three times a week, you might as well not be reading it. Now, you didn't hear me say that. I'm not encouraging you not to read it, okay? But like, it's functionally, it just doesn't really have an effect on you. So, when it comes to, well, if we really want to be people who are lifelong students of Scripture, if we really want to be people who are orienting our lives around us, if we want to be like David, after God's heart, not after information, well, how do we do this? We have to start tiny, like really, 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 really tiny. If we make the behavior easier to do, we're more likely to do it. Okay, so again, the misfit's guide to joy. It's even hard explaining it myself here now. It was like three times a day for five minutes a day, sit, you have a list of joyful things you did. Oh, you had to do that beforehand. And so, yeah, before you do this, come up with a list of all your joy-filled memories. Okay, now for five minutes, three times a day, remember your joy. Like, was it, what? Don't sign me up for that, right? But if we start small, we can build on small. B.J. Fogg, the guy who came up with this, a Stanford professor, he transformed his dental hygiene, and his goal was just flossing one tooth. You're like, that's insane, right? He did it. He just would floss one tooth, and he'd celebrate. Yes! And, and after I, it, really, this is transforming my own life. I'm just applying this to spiritual practices. But like starting small sounds so counterintuitive, but it's actually how we can add to small. If you convince yourself you're a person who's orienting their life around Scripture, and you're someone who really does sit at the feet of Jesus and dwells with the living God every day, you can add to that. But if you, for many of us, it's like, man, I'm not the type of person that reads their Bible every day. I mean... There's probably someone more godly than me that's doing that. I, I mean, I try. I get all these false starts, and I feel really shameful. Yeah, I knew it. I'm not super godly. You're never going to get there. So how do we start? One verse. You're like, I'm not going to do that. That is so ridiculous. Why would I read one verse every day? Because for many of us, tiny is not just a great option. It's the only option we have. We've tried a million times. I'm going to read a chapter a day. 
all right? I'm going to do this Bible reading plan from the Bible Project. I'm going to get through the whole Bible. I'm going to listen to all these podcasts to go with it. I'm going to be like a Bible scholar by June. And then by June, they're, hey, how's that going? I never said I was going to do that. <laughs> I mean, I thought about it, but I didn't say I was going to do it. Most of us, it's not a motivation problem. We just have poorly designed habits, all right? And so as a result, we don't end up paying attention to the Bible because it becomes a shame thing. It becomes this guilt thing, like, man, I should be doing this more. You know, I, oh. I feel bad, and so we just stay away. I mean, this is my own relationship. When I was in high school, I remember I grew up in a church that loved having this thing called a quiet time. But I remember I also had Madden 08, all right, and an Xbox. And junior year, my parents let me move my TV into my room. And so I remember every time I would go to sit down, I'd be like, hmm, I haven't read my Bible today. You know, whatever. Patriots need to win the Super Bowl, all right? So, some of us, tiny is the only way we have to go. Here's how we're going to start tiny, all right? I wish, this is how we orient our lives. This is how David read. And I wish there was like a really cool way we could make it like a different, like an acronym, like RATS or something. But uh, read, meditate, pray, contemplate. You're like, that's complicated, Craig. Hang on. We're starting tiny, remember? Read, meditate, Pray, contemplate. One verse. All right? You can start with Psalm 29.1. What does it look like? All right? We got to think about back to this BMAP thing. All right? No behavior happens unless we have motivation, which we're saying we've got. We want to hear from the living God. Ability. Uh, I've tried to read the Bible. I, don't, I get lost a lot. Okay, well, we're working on ability right now. All right? Prompts. We'll talk about that in a second. Here's the ability portion of it. This is something that basically, since the conception of the church, is called Lectio Divina. Uh, Origen said that because the Word is the Word incarnate, we need to read the Word like this to dwell with the Word. All right? Christians for thousands of years have done this. Read, meditate, pray, contemplate. You take your one verse, okay? Here we go. One verse, Psalm 29, 1. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Check. I just did 25% of this. Celebrate. Wow. All right? I'm someone who's moving toward orienting their lives around God's word. This is fantastic. I'm doing something that Christians have done for thousands of years. Just, you just read. That's, that's all you do. Just read. You're doing it. You can do it. I can do it. Meditate. Oh, What's that? Is this like mindfulness? Like, what's happening here? I don't know how to do this. Is there an app for this? Meditate. The Hebrew word for meditate, it, it's like growl. It's a, it's a, the, the mental image is like a lion growling over a bone. All it means is just like soak in it. Kind of let it run over you, okay? So you're like, okay, I just read it. I'm, I'm there. All right, ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord. Lord. All right, what's it saying? What's it saying? He's saying ascribe. All right, he's saying give to God glory and strength. Okay, so like, okay, so we just think about how strong. Okay, you're doing it. You're halfway there. All right? You're doing it. You've read. Now you're, you're meditating. All right, I'm just, I'm just, I, this may not be happening. Not much may be happening here, but I'm trying to do this. I'm doing it. Oh my gosh, I'm meditating. We're halfway there. All right? Like for so many of us, reading scripture is really intimidating, but we can all do this. Like, I read a lot now. I just, I, I, I really, I mean, like, I really was not a reader in high school, okay? Like, I, to kill a mockingbird, I think I watched the movie and, like, wrote the report on it. You know, I was like that student, all right? I'm not trying to argue that everyone in here needs to become, like, the next, like, let's go to the library and become, like, I think we're better than me. Oh, the, did you see the movie? The book was way better. Like, we're not trying to be those people. <laughs> All right? We're just trying to dwell with the living God. All right? And we're halfway there. We're doing what thousands of years of Christianity, the wisdom has helped us to do. And this is how we don't just read the Bible as an intellectual way. We do it to dwell with the living God. We pray. I know prayer is intimidating. For many of us, it's like, oh, man, what do I, what do I say? You just tell God what's on your heart. What if it's not about the verse? It's on your heart. Just tell him. What we pay attention to is what starts to shape our life. Just tell God what you're paying attention to. God, I had a hard time reading this verse because I'm fighting with my mom, and I'm just thinking about that a lot. Just tell God what's on your heart. Be before him. He delights in that. He loves it when we bring our stuff to him. 
We're almost there. Contemplate. Now, remember, in an age where information is not scarce, attention becomes scarce. Be so gracious when we practice contemplation. What does it mean to contemplate? Well, Mother Teresa was talking to a reporter from the BBC. And I know Mother Teresa has problems. There's a podcast. Listen to it. It's crazy, okay? Uh, but uh, she was talking, this is profound. She was talking to a reporter from the BBC, and she said, what do you do when you contemplate God? She said, it's very simple. I sit in silence, and I sit in silence with God, who's also sitting in silence. Well, what do you say to each other? Okay, I, I do, if you didn't get it, I don't know how to explain it more clearly. I sit in silence, and God sits in silence, and we're there together. That's contemplation. That's the, the Emmanuel lifestyle. That's saying, God, I just want to be with you. Right? Like, I've been married now 12 years. 12 years? She's gone. 12 years, I think. I've been married 12 years, and Amy and I have gotten really good at just being together in that silence, feeling each other. That's contemplation. Right? And again, tiny is where we start. I think I can do it like 10 seconds. That's fantastic. Let's celebrate that. That's wonderful. That was 10 seconds we weren't thinking about the Kansas City Chiefs. That's wonderful. Lectio Divina. We start tiny. Start with one verse. We don't try to stay tiny. Right? Like, well, if I just read one verse of Scripture for the rest of my life, I'm probably going to have some weird ideas about God. Totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. Please don't misunderstand me. Like, we're not trying to take this book, rip it out of context, and be like, well, I have, you know, I have this one verse. I have no idea what it means, but I've been thinking about it for a long time. We want to start small and work larger. But celebrate, right? Everything else is bonus, all right? If you get one verse down and you do this through one verse, just be great. Literally celebrate. And the reason that celebration is so important is because our brains are wired to move toward joy. That's what addiction is. Do you understand that? Addiction is our brains. Life is hard, and so we're, something else brings us more joy, and so we move to that thing. The other, yesterday I was walking. It was like my first, it was day 10. I'm like, whoo, I'm going for a walk. So I'm, I'm headed outside, and my neighbor is taking down Christmas decorations, right? I didn't really want to talk to this neighbor. And I'm coming, I'm getting closer, and it's awkward, right? And he's like, oh, great day to take down Christmas decorations. And I was like, what? What? Like, what does that even mean? I'm like, oh, yeah. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, that's right. You know, get them while we got them. And he's like, yeah. And I grab my phone, and I just start looking at it. Because I'm medicating. I feel awkward. I feel, ooh, this is really, I don't like this. It's uncomfortable. Okay, I feel better. All right? We move toward joy. If when we read scripture, we actually do these celebrations, which you will feel silly. All right? When you read one verse, and you're like, wow, yes, I'm, I'm being serious. Like when you celebrate that you've read one verse, and when you've done Lectio Divina, you're like, woohoo! Like you celebrate like you won the Super Bowl, you're going to feel insane. But you're going to start liking to do it. All right? You're, well, what about the P part of the B map? Prompts. Remember, no behavior starts without a prompt. All right? So many of us, the reason we don't read our Bibles is just because we have poorly designed prompts. So here's what B.J. Fogg recommends doing. Take a behavior you already do, something that you already do, something that you already got going on for you, all right? And then just add this to it. So for example, what I did was every day when I brush my teeth, I put my toothbrush on the charger, and that putting the toothbrush on the charger is a prompt to grab mouthwash, all right? I didn't use the mouthwash. You're welcome, staff. I'm just a more pleasant person to be around, all right? And now, after a couple of days, I would forget. I'm like, oh, man, I forgot to do it. It's okay. You just keep going back. Here's some things where I do. When you drop off, you know, you drop off your kids at school, and you buckle up, just in the parking lot. Keep your Bible. Open up on your phone. Do this. One verse. So after I buckle up, I'm going to do this Lectio Divina. I'm going to read, meditate, pray, contemplate. All right? How about this? After I, all, every day, I brew a cup of coffee. After I put the pot back on the, the I'm going to go sit. I'm going to open up my Bible and read my one verse. And then I'm going to celebrate. And what you're going to find is that you're going to start to be someone who's orienting their life around Scripture. It's going to get into you. Because here's the beautiful thing. This isn't a master class that's taught to us by some distant expert. Right, it would be awesome to learn how to direct if Ron Howard came to my house. Right, like I have questions. Like, that didn't make sense. I don't understand what you're talking about. If Ron was with me, 
That would be fantastic. That's what David is saying about this book. He's saying that God is with us. He's not some faraway expert teaching us. He's with us. We experience his presence as we learn to orient our lives around this book. Calvin was a young dad. And as a young dad, he was having frustrations and problems with his young child. All right? Like, they weren't connecting really well. And every time they would try to move to connect, like, Calvin would just get so frustrated. So Calvin goes to his mom and says, hey, mom, like, you know, your grandson is kind of being a pain in the butt. I don't really know how to really relate and connect with him. What tips and advice do you have with me? I find, like, when he's not responding well to me, I want to withdraw. Hey, how did you do this? You were a great mom. How did you do it? You know what Calvin's mom said to him? You need to go talk to your father, which outraged Calvin. Calvin's like, my dad? No, 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 no. Dad was never around. I don't want to talk to dad. Dad dad was always gone. Dad was always busy. Dad was always preoccupied. You were there. Can you tell me how you navigate this? I need help. Talk to your dad. <sighs> so Calvin's frustrated. He goes and talks to Ed, his dad. And Ed gets overwhelmed. He's like, man, I, I want to be a good grandfather. I don't feel like I was the greatest dad. So he finds his way into Dr. Kurt Thompson's office for a meeting. And as Ed is sharing his story with Dr. Thompson, it doesn't take long for the, the lens through which Ed was looking at to bubble to the surface. Ed, when he was a boy, his own father was angry. And it was always like, man, whenever dad gets angry, just hop on your bike and get out of there because you just don't want to be anywhere near dad when he's angry. And so what Ed learned at a very young age was he learned that when we have emotions, when we have desires that are really strong, run. And so what happened was when he was a, when he was a dad, when Calvin was a little kid, Calvin would do something that would frustrate Ed and he wouldn't know how to handle it, so he'd run. And Calvin never got to experience the presence of a dad who's with him during hard things, who sits with him. He just wasn't available. He just, ah, this is scary. I'm out of here. So the next session, Ed and Calvin sit together with Dr. Thompson. And Ed shares his story. Hey, Calvin, the reason I wasn't around wasn't because I didn't love you. I didn't know what to do. I was so overwhelmed. I get scared, and I didn't want to hurt you. I didn't want all these things, so I just withdrew. And Calvin starts crying. He had no idea. See, the lens he was looking through was like, man, there's something wrong with me. Like, there's a lot more interesting things out there than me. My dad's just interested in other things. He had no idea his dad was withdrawing his presence because he didn't know how to navigate it. But when Ed showed up, and offered his presence. It not only changed his own life. Hey, here's the lens I'm looking through that. I got an outside voice to help me see this different perspective. It changed Calvin's life. Whoa, now I understand myself differently. And not only that, it changed that grandson's life. Wild things happen when we show up. Presence changes everything. And this psalm ends in verse 11 by saying that Yahweh is enthroned over the flood. Yahweh is enthroned as king forever. He gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Remember a few months ago, it was Christmas. The angels show up and they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. This psalm becomes fully realized when God shows up. And we get strength, and we get peace, and he reigns. And we can experience that again and again every day when we read this book. It's not a book club. It's not about checking a list. It's about restoration. It's about the wounds that we have, Jesus jumping in with us and pushing us deeper into those hurts. Because what stands in the way becomes the way we experience healing. He looks through our wounds and he says, you're not alone. 
That's why we're here. That's Christ's love at work transforming. That's why we're lifelong students of Scripture. God, God, I pray that we would be people who sit with you. God, we're people who are aware of our shame. God, we stay at a distance because we don't believe the gospel. We stay at a distance because we don't really think you make the first move toward us. But God, I pray that we would be people who move toward you confidently because you first moved toward us. God, help us to show up. Help us to show up to you. Help us to pay attention to you because when we pay attention to you, you speak. Amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.